0: This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, the way of the cross. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. preach here today. (laughs)
1: Well, good morning, church, and welcome to those online and those that will watch us later. Hello to you, and uh, thanks for being in our worship service here today as we continue to uh, lift up the name Jesus Christ in this Advent season. Again, uh, if you're not with us, we are in a sermon series. This is week two, and uh, we're in a sermon series that I wanted to kind of do something different this holiday season. A lot of times um, these would be times we'd be focusing on specifics of the Christmas story, but I wanted to focus on the idea of What is so significant about Jesus coming to us, right? What is so big about that? And yes, we know that he comes and he forgives sins. He he comes and he washes us clean and all those things. But what practical things does that do in our life, even here and now? And so uh, last week, we looked at this big, huge topic that was called guilt. And uh, if you didn't get to hear that, if you ever struggle with guilt, especially, uh, please go back and watch that. Uh, There were many things that were said that are, are especially of the gospel in that. I want to share that with you. But another big thing that is really a big, huge topic for us to consider and to think about how Jesus and his life, his, his death, and his resurrection, and his coming, and his coming again, part two, if you will, what it means in our life, and that is shape, another big word that we hear and often think of. And so we're going to be talking about that today, but first let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, shame is a powerful force. It's uh, something that is is quite unique. And it's interesting in the history of uh, the Western world, a lot of times we deal more with guilt. But if you look at other cultures, a lot of times, actually if you were to say guilt or shame, shame is actually something they deal with even more than guilt, which is always interesting. When I was studying in seminary, it was uh, people from all around the world, and uh, we'd always talk about how God forgives sins and all these things. And I remember hearing their story and their take on when God forgives sins. It wasn't just the idea of God forgave me; it was God forgave my community, right? And because it was this kind of idea of shame, and that really gets to the heart of what is different between guilt and shame. You see, guilt is when your conscience convicts you, right? Guilt is when you know you've done wrong. And I did not, you know, chop down that cherry tree or whatever it was, right? Right? And and you know you did wrong, but yet you're, you're you know feel that guilt. And even many years later, sometimes when you try to make amends, sometimes that guilt even lingers with us. And we talked last week about how Jesus came to free us of that guilt and pay the price for us. And shame is a little different. Shame is actually something that is not you. Shame is your community places on you, right? Shame is that idea of you have done something wrong or something the community does not enjoy. And shame is that idea of they put you in scarlet letters, so to speak. They they put a clothing around you, so to speak, that makes you designated as someone who is either outcast or someone who is someone to look down upon or someone who has done wrong and we don't need to let them forget about it or on and on and on, the idea of shame. Shame, shame, shame. The idea, of course, about that is, this simple idea is that we ourselves oftentimes feel that guilt, but shame is something placed upon us. If you ever think of that old uh, kids adage, right, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can really harm me, right? I mean, it is true. Like That old adage the kids say that words cannot hurt me is untrue altogether. Words can not only hurt, they can harm and they can scar. And the words that we say to each other and the words that we use for our children and how we bring them up and how we teach them to, to talk to each other is so powerful. Someone in my family uh, recently was uh, in high school and uh, just has curly hair. He let it grow a little long. because It's kind of in right now to grow it long. And it was amazing. I had my sister asked me to call because he was dealing with just people shaming him because he had curly hair, right? The kids at school just teasing him to the point where he internalized it and actually was going through life and hurting over something silly like curly hair, right? We call that bullying in modern times and in ways we use that. But at the same time, there are things that we do. Sometimes we do feel guilty, but sometimes the shame of the community is also upon us when we've done something wrong. What happens to that shame? How do we deal with it? How does Jesus' coming affect that shame. Well, there's a simple truth is that not only does Jesus take guilt from us, but because he's taken guilt from everyone, shame is gone. Right? There's no one who gets to stand blameless before the Lord. And so when we come and we are in church, there's no shaming that is allowed, right? When we're part of the community of God, there's no shame that can be part of who we are. And yet. Shame is often a vehicle that we encounter in so many other ways. It's what other people say about us or how they make us feel or how they act towards us that makes us feel and remind us of who either what we've done or who they think we are. It's amazing to think that Jesus came to take away shame. I think of the times he hung out with prostitutes, the times he hung out with tax collectors. and He didn't say, hey, you guys... They're not doing evil, but he came and he still was with them. the time he touched lepers and left them close to him. Jesus took away shame all the time from people in his ministry and in his life. But it's interesting because when other people are also guilty and God forgives them of their guilt, shame has no place. Yet we still live in a world where shame exists. And here's the interesting thing, is last week we talked about how Jesus is the only one who has the power to forgive guilts and forgive sins in that sense. Well, it's true that Jesus is the only one who can give shame to somebody, but yet our world still gives shame to people. And in that, how do we handle that? Because it is true that if people stop shaming each other, then it would put an end to shame in general, because that is technically true. Yet we live in a world where we know that's just not going to happen. Shame is going to be part of it. So how do we live as Christians in the midst of a world where shame exists? And especially when we live in a world where it seems like more and more shame is used to drive change in culture, change in the world, change for political reasons, change for different ideas and different things coming to be. And oftentimes I've been moved because uh, in recent years it feels a lot of times when you really kind of dissect logical arguments, a lot of times the argument is less a logical argument than it is a, hey, let's shame this person until they feel bad enough that they have to change their mind about something, right? And so what do we do as Christians? How do we work through a world where shame is going to exist and continue to try to change us and mold us? I'm reminded of one of those uh, good old pastor stories, right? So here's a pastor story for you, right? There was an orchestral conductor. Conducted dozens of symphonies and different events of their orchestra and done all the time and, and sought praise from the people. Loved praise from the people. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And so constantly was trying to do the best they possibly could. So he every time he got up there and conducted the orchestra, He loved it afterwards when the people would come and say that was the most beautiful rendition i've ever heard of this piece or this symphony so one day his wife received the diagnosis she had limited time left on this earth one of the favorite things of course was for her to come and see her husband do this conducting of the orchestra and so she came for one last time to the orchestral concert and that night The conductor got up, and some would say he played the music too fast. Some would say he played the music too strong. Some would say he played the music with too much romance or too much passion in certain parts, too much just this and that and little critiques and little critiques. The truth was is that night the conductor wasn't playing for the audience. The conductor was playing for an audience of one. He conducted the orchestra the way his wife liked to hear the song. What I would say to us church in these times where sometimes it's just different voices competing in the world and different things going on in the world, one of the good reminders that we can remind ourselves is ultimately, when it comes rubber meets the road, we play for a concert of one. And if that person is pleased with us, then who cares? The other voices don't have the power to put shame in your life. If the one who created this earth, the one who's redeemed this world, speaks to you and into your heart, says, well done, good and faithful servant, my child whom I have redeemed. That voice is in your heart. That's the one thing that matters. It's the story of how Jesus came. I love that story because it's so much it plays out what we see in Mark chapter 8 here, when he. Jesus is talking. So many times in this verse, I get stuck in the part where he says, deny yourself and take up your cross. But he continues on with his teaching there. So not only do we want to talk about that and, and think about how the idea of how Jesus has called us to lay down our life and forfeit it, if you will. but Then he reminds us these words. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, and I look. The words of Jesus are powerful sometimes. It's like, Jesus, why would I ever be ashamed of you? When you think about Jesus and his disciples, they've left everything and they're walking with Jesus. He tells them in this moment, and he's describing to them, if someone is ashamed of me, and in their mind they must be thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? Who would ever be ashamed of you? And yet, Peter himself would deny Jesus three times that night in which Jesus was betrayed and then crucified the next day. Jesus reminds them those if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. Of course, this one doesn't say it, but other verses talk about the idea that if we're not ashamed, if we're not ashamed of Jesus and his words, not only will he not be ashamed of us, but he will welcome us in our life and work through us and be blessings. us. Remember, Advent isn't only the first coming of Jesus as a babe. Advent is the second coming of Jesus. To live with peace is a really sometimes hard. thing. One of the things I've learned as a pastor, it was told to me in Simmering over and over again, and they tried to drill it in our head, and yet you hear it, you hear it, you hear it. You don't know it until you live it. But one of the things they told us over and over and over again is, hey, guess what, pastor? If you're a people pleaser, wake up. Because <laughs> you can never please everybody. Right? You can't. And I would say as a pastor, it doesn't just go for pastors. It goes for anybody in any place, in any time, in any situation. You cannot please everyone. There's going to be some critique of what you do, or how you do it, or who you are, or what you believe in, or what you stand for. So if you can't please everybody, please the one that matters. Seek to please his life, what he calls you. How we have peace in all circumstances. As Paul would say it, I, have, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. As we're here today, and we think about shame, remember no one has the power to tell you who you are except Jesus Christ. And if your heart and your soul's desire is to please Him, the rest doesn't matter. Walk with your head tall. Walk with your shoulders upright. Because Jesus Christ is with you. In the end, that's what matters. Let us pray. God, as we're here today, we thank you so much for sometimes your challenging words. Lord, we do recognize that many times in our life there are people that put words upon us, that say things to us. Lord, that maybe, uh, once again, try to get us to change who we are or what we were doing sometimes for good purposes or sometimes for bad. May God help us to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because God, it is true that all of us need change. All of us need redemption. All of us need to be brought to you and away from the sin that entangles us. But at the same time, God, let your Word speak into our hearts over all of us. God, help us just like that conductor of the orchestra, look out, see the one in whom we're trying to please. See the one whose face is lit up with joy because we play the music to their liking. And when we do, the world is set right. So God bless us today as we celebrate community and celebrate the peace that you bring to us and victory over shame no matter who and what we are and what we are doing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.